0: So, we are in the book of Haggai today, the book of Haggai. This is a really short book, two chapters. I typically have about three pages of notes. Today I have five, so i realized that Pastor Trace wasn't here this morning, so I have extra time, so I'm going to take it. I'm just kidding. Um, so we are in the book of Haggai. This is, falls right after the book of Zephaniah, and we are just a couple of books left in the Old Testament before we are moving into the New Testament uh, this next uh, New Year. So we are today finding ourselves in this minor prophet. Now, a couple things about Haggai that we need to know: uh, He is one of the three prophets that ministered after the exile from Babylon. So. Uh, to give you a little timeline here, uh, if you remember, the, so far, here's where we've come. So the, the fall of the northern kingdom happened, right? The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, and it fell. Then the fall of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, the, the kingdoms were divided. If you remember, the ten tribes to the north, the two tribes to the south. And uh, we see this through the book of the Kings, the book of the Chronicles. We can kind of walk through how all this happened. And we see through the prophets, uh, prophets spoke and during different times. They ministered different, during different times. Um, and so the fall of the northern kingdom happens, the fall of the southern kingdom happens. Um, and then when the fall of the southern kingdom happens, Judah, uh, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. We find that in 2 Kings 25 and in 2 Chronicles 36. That's whenever the Babylonians came in. And destroyed, ransacked the city, destroyed the walls, but destroyed the temple specifically. That happened in, I've got some timeline dates here. You don't have to write them down because I'm going to move through them pretty quickly. This is just to give us an understanding of where we are. So that happened in 586 B.C. In 585 B.C., after the temple's destroyed, now Babylon has has captured the Israelites, the, the people of Judah. And they have them in captivity. Ezekiel receives news that the, pro- that the temple fell down and was destroyed. And then he prophesied about uh, how God's going to restore the people and his temple. So we know that happened the year after uh, the, the fall of Judah happened. So then from 571 to 539, Daniel, if you remember Daniel, uh, he was in exile, right? He was in Babylon We know that because you remember Nebuchadnezzar and uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that time. Uh, So Daniel was in uh, exile and he prophesied. He was dealing with um, Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar went insane. It was during this time frame uh, Daniel prophesied about the beasts. If you remember in chapter 7, just the crazy wild story of those beasts. Um, he also, uh, if you remember, the writing on the wall with Belshazzar. That all happened during the exile period. Okay, so we've got the fall of Judah. Then all of the the Judeans, all the people of Israel that were uh, in Judah are now in, ca- captured in Babylon, and uh, Daniel is prophesying during that. Um, and then after Daniel's prophecies through this, which if you remember, uh, there was a time and a season where uh, he was reading the Old Testament and saw how the, the time was going to be uh, close to the end of captivity. And so we know in 538 B.C., the king uh, Cyrus, uh, Cyrus of Persia was the one that took over, and they, they, he destroyed Babylon, took over, and he allowed the, uh, the, the people of Judah to go back to the promised land and to rebuild the temple. So we know that happened. He allowed the exiles to return uh, back to Judah. We find that in the book of Ezra, right? You remember the book of Ezra? Ezra wrote a lot about um, the the return, the remnant going back to the promised land. So you've got some prophets that were before the exile. You've got some prophets and some some leaders during the exile. And then now you've got these guys that are post-exile, after the remnant has been returning. Ezra uh, writes about whenever they came back. Uh, The first return was a couple of guys led that, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Not the Joshua of the book of Joshua. It's a different Joshua. This is several years later. Um, So Zerubbabel and Joshua. Joshua was the high priest. Zerubbabel was the guy that led the first remnant back to Jerusalem, to the promised land. And so whenever he does that, uh, we find that in Ezra chapter 2. So he goes back to Jerusalem. Ezra records that. While that's going on, Daniel's still in captivity. Daniel's still in, um, in, in the, the Babylonian place while all these things are kind of shaking out. Okay? So then there was a few things that play, play a part. And so the timeline, it gets kind of hard for us because you really got to move back and forth a little bit to know. Because when Daniel wrote, his, his, all of his writings um, were through a specific time frame. Right, So he's still got some things going on. Uh, In Babylon. But now uh, what's happened is we see the first remnant has gone back. Okay. Uh, And this is like, what's crazy. Esther hasn't even happened yet. Okay. So like the book of Esther is not written yet because the book of Esther, uh, she was the queen of Persia. Persia was the one that came in and and destroyed Babylon. Okay. So there's the timeline is kind of in my, in my head, it's, it's a, it's a web of just like all kinds of craziness. But as we think about this, you got to realize that this first remnant's come back. And so it's, it's good to know the context of where Haggai comes in. So when, when the remnant comes back, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they start building. They lay the foundation. We find in Ezra chapter 3 and 4, they lay the foundation of the temple. Okay? Then if you remember, the Samaritans came in and said, hey, we want to help you build this. And the people of God said, no, we're not going to let you do that. So then the Samaritans made it difficult on them. They harassed them. They bothered them. They poked at them. They prodded at them. And so in, uh, in, in 535 B.C., after the foundation is laid, the, all of the construction stalled. The construction stopped because there was some, there was some trouble coming. Okay? So during that time the construction stopped, this guy Haggai and the guy Zechariah that we're going to look at next week in his book, they were the ones that convinced the people to rebuild again, to rebuild the temple. Okay. Now, this is not the walls of Jerusalem. That's Nehemiah later. Okay. This is the temple, the first remnant that's come back. Their, their job was to rebuild the temple. So we know in 516 B.C. the temple is completed. You find that story in, in Ezra chapter 6. Um, so, the, again, the second and third remnants haven't come back from captivity yet. So this is a, this is a season. That's going to happen over the next 70 years or so as the remnants show back up. And so that kind of gives us a timeline to understand a little bit more about where Haggai is and what he is doing. Uh, his name is very unique. Uh, he was, again, a contemporary of Zechariah. Malachi would come later. So Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi is going to be about 100 years later. Okay, So that kind of gives us a little bit of a, of a picture. Haggai is very, very unique in the fact that his name is the, this is the only time his name is in Scripture. There's no other Haggai mentioned in Scripture. His name means festal one, or the one that was a, a, a festival himself. Now, what this, there, there's some different scholars believe different things. Some believe he was born during a festival. Some believe that he was uh, so badly wanted, for his, his parents so badly wanted a child that when he was born, they made a festival out of his whole life. They were just like, he is the, the best ever. He is the best, the best, the best. So. Um, That's a little bit about uh, his name. It's a short book, just four, just uh, two chapters. (laughs) I almost doubled it, just two chapters. But in these two chapters, there are four prophecies. So these four prophecies are pretty awesome, and I I love how it's all laid out. So we're going to look at, and each of them, Haggai was a guy that uh, I feel like I'm a little bit like Haggai, I feel like that, because he, he numbered everything. He dated exactly whenever he was giving his prophecies. We know in these four prophecies when they happened down to the very day. Like I can even show you on our calendar today, based on the calendar they were using, what days he was prophesying on. It's awesome. Like I love this. It helps me to know more about the context of where he's at. So in these, uh, in the, in the, these four prophecies all happen within four months. So it's not like this guy had a ministry that was 40 years long. These prophecies are all within four months of when he was sharing them. So uh, the first one we see uh, is happens in, in, we will read in chapter 1, verse number 1. Um, but as we, as we look at these uh, different prophecies, there's something interesting. You know, I try to, to, as we do this survey, I try to take a step back and look at the theme of this book, figure out what it means to us. Uh, one of the themes of this book, I think, is um, obviously is the temple, and partly because, as we remember, so the remnants come back. They had started construction, then the construction stopped, and then several years pass. Haggai shows up with Zechariah, and they say, "We got to, you got to get back to this." And we'll see in just a minute how he proclaims that. But he loves the building of the temple, and he mentions three uh, different temples in this book. So it's just two chapters, but in there, in in the chapter two what we'll find is he mentions three different temples. He first mentions Solomon's temple, then he'll mention Zerubbabel's temple, the one that they are building, and then he mentions the Messiah's temple that will come. And so it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. I love how it's all laid out. Um, we're gonna look at it in the four parts today in the four different prophecies. Um, and I, I've named them all starting with the letter B, like a real good preacher would. So the first part we're gonna look at is building second part's beholding, the third part's behaving, and the fourth part's believing. <laughs> look at that. It all works out. Um, and we'll hopefully expound on that. So we're just going to jump right in. Part number one, uh, the first prophecy that comes out, uh, we're going to look at the building prophecy. Um, it gives us a lot of background, even in these first two verses. Uh, it's, again, the second year of Darius, the king, uh, uh, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord, the people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. That's the first two verses. In those first two verses tells us a lot. Um, But here's the thing. This date, if you think about what's the second year of the king, the sixth month on the first day of the month, that calendar, if you lay it over the top of our calendar we use and operate by today, this is October the 29th. Um, and so as we think about this, um, they, uh, uh, this, is, this is a time where he is, he is, there's a lot going on. So we have to kind of understand what's happening, right? We see the timeline. Haggai shows up as the, the temple has stalled. And they say in there that um, uh, the word of the Lord, it says that the time has not come yet to rebuild. So the way that the, uh, the, way that the Lord spoke to Haggai was he said, the Lord of hosts said, these people say the time has not come to rebuild yet. And so a uh, couple, couple of things to understand. Um, at this point, the people that have shown up to rebuild, the first remnant that's come back to rebuild the temple they got out there and they heard words from prophets before talking about how great the promised land was. This is the first remnant that went back. So these are the, these are the early adopters, right? These are the ones that as soon as the king of, uh, of Persia, as soon as Cyrus, uh, Cyrus says, It's time to go back home you're allowed to go back to the promised land. He makes this decree and he says, I'll even help fund the building of your temple. So this this, uh, Persian king says, it's time to go do that. So the first people that go are the excited ones, right? These are the ones that are like, absolutely, this is what we've been longing for. Probably the people that really envied and valued the words of the prophets before of how great the promised land really was. So they get back there, they get to Jerusalem, and it's not... Glam and glory. They get back. It's in destruction. It is completely destroyed. Do you know how hard it is to go and live a pioneering life after you've lived in... in not, and, and captivity in Babylon wasn't the worst thing in the world. Like, pack, captivity in Babylon, everything was provided for them. There was, there was merchants. There was flow. There was, you could just get up, go to the grocery store, get your groceries, come home, do your thing. I, you didn't have to grow your groceries. You know, it wasn't that this, this business was booming. So they go back and they get a little bit frustrated. They get a little bit tired. And what happens, Haggai deals a lot with, uh, with laziness. I, I love it. It's fantastic. But uh, for 16 years is where we, we see verse number 2. In verse 2, it says that the, verse, that the Lord says, these people say the time's not come to rebuild the house. That's, that's been 16 years. 16 years from when they started. The foundation of the temple was laid, but now 16 years has gone by and nothing's been touched. And when people say it's not time to rebuild yet, why do they say that? Well, as I did a lot of research looking back through this, I thought, why are people saying it's not time to rebuild it yet? They didn't say it shouldn't be rebuilt, right? So we give them a little bit of credit. Like, oh, well, they knew it needed to be rebuilt. They just said it wasn't time yet. Well, where were they... What time did they think it was? What, time? what happened was there, were, um, there was a couple of, of prophecies that we don't really talk about throughout the Old Testament scriptures. There was one, the 70-year captivity of Babylon, and there was a second prophecy that was going on at the same time that was a 70-year um, uh, time of desolation, which was the time that the, the temple in Jerusalem was, was destroyed and would not be rebuilt. And so what happened was these two timelines are kind of going at the same time. And the people had, they knew this. They knew that this, the desolation period, I don't have a lot of time to jump into it. Uh, I encourage you to check it out. But the the desolation period was a time where the people would hear that prophecy and then they would say, well, we don't know if that time's come yet. We're still waiting. So we're not going to rebuild the temple until that day comes. Here's the problem. The time that day ended was the time the temple should have been rebuilt. So the time is moving. In Haggai, we see with Haggai's words, that time of desolation ends. And it's super cool. It's awesome to watch how God's timing. And by the way, it's perfect. Like his timing, it did not miss. It was within the year and the time. It's amazing. I think that's why Haggai dates things so strongly. Because he wanted to show this is the exact time I said this phrase, which ended that 70-year prophecy that was beyond just the exile, but the time of desolation. So they get to this place, but what the people were doing is they got to, they heard this word and said, "Oh, it's not time yet. It would be like today." Let me put this in today's terms. It would be like today if you were reading the Old Testament and you said, "Man, Ezekiel thirty-eight shows a war, and that war happens from the the east, and that war happens." I I, I can just about spell it out for you. Ezekiel thirty-eight does, and so this war that breaks out in, in from Russia and from the the the. Different places around Israel that attacks Israel. If I were to say that war hasn't happened yet, so I don't have to. I don't have to do anything. I still got time, right? Because I'm I'm reading that prophecy, and I, I believe that that war is on the verge of starting. Okay, I really I think it's like right here. I, I, I think it could be tomorrow. I would not be surprised if the news started out that you know there somebody's like I read Ezekiel thirty eight and this just happened. Like here it is, it started. We're that close. However, if I read that prophecy and I say, oh, this hasn't happened yet, so I can just keep going about my business as usual. That's, the, that's, that's a sign of being just content, being just, oh, I'm, just, I'm complacent. I'm not going to do what God's told me to do today. So Haggai is the one that brings that out. So these people had actually, just that phrase, it's not time to rebuild the house of the Lord. What they were really saying is it's not a convenient time to rebuild the house of the Lord, because why? The next couple of verses, uh, we will find that uh, uh, why they believed that way. Um, so uh, this uh, this this first day of the sixth month um, is this time. Haggai calls out the laziness and indifference of the people, and here's what happens um, in verses three through eleven. Uh, this one is the one that comes really hits really close to home. Uh, in these, ver- I'm not going to read all these verses. I encourage you to read them uh, today. Um, but it's a, uh, this is the time the word of the Lord came to, by the hand of Haggai the prophet, it's time for you, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while his house, this house, lies in ruins. Verse number four gives us that, pi- that picture of uh, while the temple was laying in ruins for 16 years, they had gone and built their own houses. So Haggai says this in a sarcastic tone. This is why, again, I feel like I'm a little like Haggai. He likes to number things and he's a little bit sarcastic. Here's what he says. People saying, it's not time to build the house of the Lord yet. So until that, we're gonna build our own houses. We're gonna be about our interests. We're gonna be about our needs. We're not gonna be about the house of the Lord. So they build their own houses paneled houses, which in this day, paneled houses, this was, uh, wood was a commodity, this was a a high dollar thing, so here's what's happening. All this resources are going up, things are getting nicer, things are getting fancier, and the laziness is what gets called out. Uh, The return to the promised land is characterized by the word I would use, and this sounds terrible, but the word I would use is lukewarmness, and the reason is material blessings were on the rise, but the work was being, being neglected for, for the Lord's work. Um, again, it didn't say it shouldn't be built, just said just not yet, right? Um, Haggai uses a word a couple of times. That word is consider. And what he's doing is he's telling the people that are there, the remnant, he says, listen, just consider what you're doing. I just want you to take a moment and think about it. Here's, here's one of the greatest pieces of wisdom I had ever learned. And I use this to this day, and I tell everybody that I'm allowed to speak into their life, here's what I will say. Whenever somebody says, I need help in my marriage. If it's some man says, hey, I need help in my marriage. I will typically say this. What I want you to do is whenever there's a situation arise, I want you to consider something. That's all. I just want you to think about something. Take a second, step back, answer answer this question. What would the greatest husband in the world do right now? I said, if you were to stand back and consider that question, your actions will be different. I tell youth pastors and senior pastors and worship pastors, I tell church staff and anybody that I lead, here's what I tell them. Take a moment and ask yourself, what would the greatest student pastor in the world do right now? And you step back and consider that, and it puts in your mind, okay, he would probably do this, is what the greatest student pastor would do. Okay, then do that, (laughs) right? then you become the greatest student pastor in the world. Do that as a husband, as a father. And I'll tell you this, as a father is where it shows up most in my life. Because I'll be sitting at dinner after having a long day, after having some hard conversations, after getting yelled at by people or whatever it may be, and I'll go home and I'm not happy and I'm sitting at the dinner table and we're eating together and my daughter is just, I got a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. And y'all, they do not stop. You know what I'm saying? They start that mouth moving and it's just... Constant, And I'm like, I can't keep up. And I can keep up with a lot. And I'm slow with them. And so I'm thinking, and and here's what happens. I get in this mode where I'm like, I don't feel like listening to this. You know, have you ever listened to a a teenage girl talk for about five minutes? And about a minute in, you don't know what's happening anymore. You've lost the conversation. You're like, I don't know where we're at. I don't know what's going on. I, I will catch myself now. As soon as I start to zone out, Considering, what would the best dad in the world do right now? And it's like I gotta lock in, man. I gotta lock in for a moment because the best dad in the world would not abandon their daughter in a moment where she's trying to share her heart. That's not what the best dad does. Haggai asks these questions. He keeps saying, "Consider." He says this in verse five. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord: Consider your ways. Have you you've have sown much and harvested little? You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Here's what he's saying. You've come back. You were, you were wealthy. Zerubbabel is or, uh, Zerubbabel's brought back with him in this remnant uh, the, the finances of Persia. And Persia's put in all this cash. So there's a, a growing um, materialism, a growing amount of, of luxury so what's happened is they've begun to try to live off that luxury. And here's what God does. I, I love how God is like, he's like, listen, you can, you can labor all you want, but I'm going to make your labor profitless. It's not going to profit you. I'm going to, you, 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 can, you can't control how cold it gets. God's like, I'll let you keep putting layers on. I'll just keep turning the temperature down. You're not going to stay. It, you can't fix yourself. You can't just live a life of plush laziness that you are going to experience that just entertainment had taken over. Um, The the luscious life of what was once the worldly way to live now is this pine. And and, now, granted, I don't want to be too hard on them because I don't want to go grow my own food. I want somebody else to grow it. I don't care where they're growing it. I want it to be packaged up in a nice little package, and I want the expiration date on it to be a year away where I can eat it anytime I want, right? That's why like, I want to get up in the middle of the night from a warm bed, walk over, and if I want to grab a handful of cashews, I want to know those cashews are delicious and they're not expired. That's the way I want to live my life. So the pioneering life isn't easy. So what he does uh, over and over and over again, uh, this is a, um, uh, this passage is really hard for me to even, even think about um, because... As as the times that I uh, get to sit in front of the Lord and listen to the Lord as a pastor, um, I see a lot of what's happening here in the the next few verses. What you see, consider your ways, go up to the hills, bring the wood of your house. He keeps talking. And what he's saying is half hearted measures are not what God's asked for. God does not want your lazy lukewarmness. We know that because we have the rest of the book, right? We see there's a day coming where he talks about spitting us out of his mouth, like the the church of Laodicea. This is a time where he is telling people, and here's what he's saying. In In our terms today, here's what Haggai is telling to the people. You come in and you tip God whenever you feel like it. Instead, God's asked you for a tithe that's a regular part of your everyday life. You come in and you say, I'll give a little here, but not till it hurts. I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice. Therefore, I'm not going to be obedient. And, I'm not gonna. and God the whole time is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what I have instructed you to do. I've instructed you to live your life this way. I've not instructed you. And it's, it's not just about the material resources. They were not serving one another either. It's about, you know, we, we come into this place and we say, well, I feel like this, or I feel like this, or I feel like this. And God says, what, did, what does my word say? And consider how your life is going right now. You are robbing from me. You're not doing what I've asked you to do. You've, you're now looking like the other people in the world, and you're not looking like my people. And he says, so I'm going to make all of your efforts profitless. You're not going to you're not gonna be able to function. Haggai is bringing this word. It's hard. It's, it seems harsh. And so what happens after this man prophesies, uh, we see even in uh, verse number 11, he says, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, the ground that brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. He's saying this, if you do not turn your hearts back, you have, and these are the, these are the early adopters to God's plan, right? These are the first remnant back. These are the superheroes of, of the faith. These are the ones that say, I get a chance to go live a life that God has already prepared in advance for me, and so I'm going to go do that in the land He's called me to. They go out there. These should be the ones that are ready. Build the temple up first thing, then worry about their houses later, right? They've been in captivity. Wonder where they. But as soon as they get out, they have a little bit, just a little. The Samaritans threaten them, and in that threat, they're like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to. I'm going to recluse myself. I'm going to recluse myself. I'm going to be back here just building my house, living my little life, not bothering anybody. Now, I'm not going to mess with anything. And in that, this whole, God says, "I, I didn't call you to a life of comfort. I've called you to a life of completeness and joy. And in that is doing my work and being a part of it. So Haggai preaches this sermon. Then verses 12 through 15, the coolest thing happens. Rarely do we see this. In a, in a minor prophet or in a time or a season uh, like this. But listen to what happens. Now, you've got to remember, these are the people that have come back from captivity. So they have now been freed from captivity. And there is something that changes in our hearts and minds when we realize we've been freed from captivity. Because listen to what happens in this next section. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the, the priest, with all the remnant of people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. These verses, verses 12 to the end of the chapter, are a blessing that shows up because the people are obedient. They're obedient. I'm telling you, if I got up Sunday and preached the passage from section uh, in, in chapter one, that first section, if I got up and said, all you all are lazy, useless, living a plush life, and I'm telling you this, God's going to bring a curse on you if you don't start getting it right. If I were to say that, my guess is I would have more angry emails coming my way than I would obedience, right? If I were to say that and say, listen, you've not been tithing the right way. You've not been serving the right way. We've got six spots open in kids' ministry. Nobody's serving. Nobody's loving on these kids like Jesus would love. I got 14 places over here. If I was to come and do that, most likely you'd be like, man, Preacher's ticked off today, (laughs) right? Something's got up in his crawl, and he's just all kinds of mad. This is so bad. This is awful. This is awful. And Haggai does this, and there's this massive amount of obedience. The people turn back to the Lord, and they get their hearts right. They get their lives right. This great, incredible thing happens. Then chapter number 2 begins. This is is so, so great. In chapter 2, again, he dates it. He says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month... The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and so this is a um, this is another another time. This is the second uh, prophecy. Uh, again, I love a guy that, that numbers his days. Like it just it makes me makes me happy happy. Um, in the uh, so just before this, again, just just to reek the the finishing part of chapter one, the Lord it says that he awakens their spirit after they have after they're obedient. He awakens them, he revives them, he fills them up, gives them the spirit that gives them the power uh, to, to do the work, to go back and start start working on the temple again. And so now here we are, a couple, couple weeks later, just a few weeks later, um, and this day uh, is actually, so the, the, second, the seventh month on the 21st day of the month, this is the time that we know, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23 specifically, this day... Is the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I told you, I love the Feast of Tabernacles because of what it stands for. It stands for God dwelling with his people, which was a picture of how he provided in the wilderness while they were wandering around the wilderness decades, centuries ago. And so, this day, specifically in chapter 2, verse 1, is uh, the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, which is the final feast of the harvest season, okay? So now there's been, uh, there's been seven weeks from the time of the first prophecy to the time of the second prophecy. So in this, in this seven-week period, uh, some incredible things happened. People, um, uh, people had started building the temple. Now here's the problem. In chapter 2, we see a very subtle attack of the enemy. So Haggai has, has for, however, in his, in his supernatural spiritual uh, uh, inspiration... People have now turned their backs their, their hearts to the Lord, turned their back from the world and their lazy life they 've gone now to do their work they 've got a new awakened spirit fresh and new seven weeks later the final the seventh day of the Feast of tabernacles, the beautiful harvest season this is like the best time of year by the way this is this is in the month of probably September October okay and so I can give you the exact date in a minute uh, but as, as you've gotten out of this point um, from August 29th was the first, the first uh, thing, so seven weeks later, uh, we're now into the first of October, the first of October, or the middle of October, and now we're to a place where it should be a joyous season. I'd say the happiest season of all is October. Everybody loves October. Every, October's fantastic, and so this it should be, it's, it's the best weather, it's the best harvest season, it's the best um, uh, everything. Everything should be the best, and what happens now is the people start grumbling. You know what's said? If you read chapter 2, the first few verses, you will hear that, well, this, I'll tell you this, this temple ain't like Solomon's. No, not like Solomon's at all. Solomon's was a temple. This thing, I don't even know what, this doesn't look near as glamorous this doesn't look near as nice, near as fancy. You think I'm crazy. Listen, it says in verse 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? You know what he's saying? People are, and we can find this in the book of Ezra. I encourage you to go back and read it. But people have now started complaining that this today is not like it used to be. The good old days were way better than today. And so I love how Haggai points it out. He's like, that temple was hundreds of years ago. He's like, how in the world? Who was there? Who saw it? Oh, none of you. That's right. None of you did. You're just finding something to complain about. Now here on the surface level, if you think about it, there's a a little bit of, we almost see honor in remembering the good old days. There's, There's something about that. If I can be just totally transparent with you, this is the hardest part for me um, because there is, there is a subtle attack. It's so sneaky. It's so slimy. And but, but this is the way the enemy works. He will say, do you remember how good at the glorious the works of God were? They're way better than today's. And what that does is it brings a little bit of, of disappointment and a little bit of depression and a little bit of, of sadness, discouragement is now happening today because we remember how great the good old days were. Can I tell you, as a pastor's son, can I tell you, as a pastor's, well, let's, let's, let's expand that for just a second. As a pastor's son who lost his father, who then God called to pastor the church that his father pastored for 20 plus years, in that, in that position, let me tell you how the enemy bothers me. Let me tell you how the enemy comes at me. Your dad never did it that way, and he was way better than you are. Do you remember how great your dad's ministry was? Do you remember how great those days were? Do you remember whenever... I remember coming here whenever I was a teenager, seeing an old school building sitting on the back of this, uh, this, this, this property, seeing... and then whenever that school building had to get torn down, we saw some, some mobile trailers out here, right, for uh, Sunday school space and student space and kids space. You know, then I I saw whenever those went away and the next building goes up, I saw how missions were taken all over the world. I saw hundreds of people baptized. I saw all kinds of things. And, and, And now I'm in this place and I hear in my head, well, it's not like it used to be. Well, it's not as good as it used to be. Do you not remember how great that ministry was then? You'll never be able to do VBS like that. You'll never have this. That stuff's in my head. And here's what's even worse. Sometimes, now this is, this, sometimes people will tell me those things. And it's not just people, I'm not talking about people in the church. I'm not talking about people in here. This, this church has been so wonderful and so gracious to me and so kind to me. And they've not said, well, your dad did it better than you. I know we're all thinking it, but either no saying it. But what happens is uh, uh, other pastors, they're like, man, how do you handle that? Like your dad was the best. And I'm like, i like, he was the best. And they're like, how are you feeling in those shoes? I'm like, I'm trying. I don't know. And it's like, are you going to do everything he did? Because he did great things. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, back off me, right? This is what's happening now whenever they're trying to build the temple. They're doing the best they can with what they have with the times that they're in. And you've got this remnant of people. And it says in the book of Ezra, it's, this, it's the oldest of the generation that's there, which is not a negative slam on the oldest generation. But it is something that says, we remember people talking about the temple. We remember the stories from our grandparents, right? I, I tell you, I love hanging out with my grandfather. He's so much fun to hang out with because he tells me stories of what it was like in 1930s, you know, in the 30s and 40s. And I'm like, I don't even know. He was born in 39, I guess, so it was probably the 40s. So he tells me all about growing up in the 40s. And it's like things were just the good old days, right? Those are the good old I wish we could go back to the good old days. He's like, you should raise your kids like the good old days. So I'm like, I, I can't do that. Like, I can't just send my 60... My father-in-law would tell me he would say... <laughs> he'd say whenever he was 13 years old, he, would, he lived in Knoxville. He'd get on a bus, go downtown, hang out all day, then come back home. And he, I, was like, I was like, I can't send my 13-year-old daughter <laughs> on a bus downtown and then expect her to show back up at home. I guess it's not going to happen. The good old days were different. So what happens here in Haggai chapter 2, we see that people were starting to complain the old temple's better than this one. You don't, you're not leading the same way. Solomon's temple was beautiful and grand and awesome and amazing. And it, and Haggai basically says, none of y'all were there. Stop talking about it. Then he says, the next phrase, he says, um, uh, how do you see it now? It is nothing. It is as nothing in your eyes. Then he said, So he's saying, listen, this is not even about what the temple looks like. This is about your perspective of the temple and your perspective of what God's doing in your presence right now. He says, you're missing it. There is a temple going up and it is a miracle that this temple is going up. I want you to just a few years ago, you were in slavery. There was no temple. God is doing a new work. You You need to not miss it. It's going right past you. You're going to to miss it, and you're going to miss out, and it's going to be terrible. So he talks about Solomon's temple there. Then he talks about the temple that's going up now, Zerubbabel's temple. And then the next couple of phrases, uh, verses 6 through 9, he talks about the Messiah's temple. And oh, how powerful the Messiah's temple is. i got verses 6 through 9 underlined. I've had it underlined in my Bible for as long as I can remember. It is... It is incredible, uh, and so read verse six through nine later, and we're going to keep moving. So then, after this prophecy, this is when the Lord reveals His His coming Messiah and the temple of His, uh, which is uh, He shakes the earth. It's fantastic, uh, treasures coming in because God's in charge. It's all great. And here's what I've learned in that second prophecy: If the first prophecy was, y'all are a bunch of lazy, worthless people that aren't doing the work that God's called you to do, right? Get to work. Get off your lazy behinds. Take it. You've been taking care of your own interests. You've not been looking at the interests of God, and God's not going to take care of it. He's not going to bless it. He's not going to bless your interests over his. It's not how you're going to do it. It's the first prophecy. The second prophecy, and then everybody repents, and they're like, all right, let's go get Jesus, right? Let's go get the Lord. Then the second prophecy, discouragement comes in after the work gets started, right? That's what we just saw. The work started... And then there's some, some just naggingness inside. So first was the outside pressures of Samaritans caused them not to build the temple. Second, inside pressures of people in the body, people in the, in the, the nation that were trying to discourage, just discouraging the building of the temple. So how does, how does Haggai, how does the Lord, through Haggai, encourage the people again? By, by the last part of this prophecy is he points to the real king. He points to Jesus He says, for thus says the Lord, yes, once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And in verse 9, he says, the latter glory of the house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The one thing I have learned, if you are looking to be encouraged after a big group of discouragement, look at the king. That's it. Look at Jesus. I will tell you, the way I battle, the way I combat, my whole glory days, and this is the whole, oh, you're never going to be as good as this, this is not going to happen this, this is not going to happen this. What I do is I take my gaze off of that, and I look at the king of kings, and I realize that he brings peace. How? It says, this Lord, in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You're looking for peace and encouragement? Look to Jesus. That's what Haggai says. Now, the third, the third uh, prophecy happens. Verse number 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. He dates it again. Nine weeks have passed now. So you got the first prophecy, you got seven weeks, and then you got the second prophecy. Then you got nine weeks, and you got the third prophecy. Okay? So third prophecy shows up. This one is all about behaving the right way. <laughs> I love it. Uh, this message in a nutshell this is verses 10 through 19 of chapter 2. Uh, in a nutshell, here's what he's saying. Holy things cannot make an unholy thing holy. Okay? You get the, let, me, let me say that again. Holy things cannot make unholy things holy. But unholy things can make a holy thing unholy. Okay? So it's, it's, it's as simple as if you take something that's pure and you put it in something that is un, in, impure... It's not going to make the impure pure. But you throw some dirt in a clean glass of water, guess what? The water's dirty, right? You can't take clean water, pour it in a bowl of mud, and expect it to be clean. Not going to happen. You can take mud, however, put it in water. The water is now unclean. That's, that's what, so Haggai explains that. And he's saying this, listen. Your behaviors, your, the things you are doing is not working. It's always easier. This is how he, he kind of sums this up in these verses, in these uh, 10 verses. He says, it's easier to tear things down than to build them up. You know, I, this is the, the best way I can explain this. I used to watch a show on TV that was um, uh, people would go into a house and they'd renovate a house. And demo day was always awesome, right? Because you can tear something down in a day. You tear it out, and it's fun, and it's easy, and everybody's in. I went, to, uh, I went on a mission trip down to Houston, Texas after the big um, hurricane that hit, and we were, we were clearing out houses just covered in water, and so after the water had subsided, we went in to tear everything out. And I'll tell you, that was the most fun mission trip I'd ever taken because I just went into people's homes and just ripped walls out, and we left with walls just ripped out, and I was like, yeah, you're welcome, you know, and it's like, Man, you did what a, what a tornado could do. Like, you didn't do anything special, but it was easy and it was fun. And so demo is much easier than rebuilding. I've not been back to Houston to build those houses back. Because building back, I can tell you, is not as easy as ripping apart. He's explaining that to the behavior of the people. He's saying, listen, it's easy to, uh, to, to tear down. And what he's, what he's referring to is, you neglected God's house to build your own. You put your interests above God's. You, you, you did this, and this was not what God is going to do. So because of that, you are unclean. Now, as he's, he's explaining that, your daily walk, your daily behaviors need to be in line with the holiness of God. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't allow your life to drift, because you never drift to holy. You don't. You don't, drift, you don't accidentally walk by and fall into holiness, okay? You may fall into a hole, but you're not falling into holiness, you, it is a conscious effort, a conscious decision. It's you walking in step with the Lord. That's what it is. So Haggai explains that. Your behavior um, needs to be in line with the Lord. Then the fourth uh, prophecy that starts in chapter 2, verse number 20 through 23. This is awesome. I titled this one, Believing. Um, so if it was, if we see the first, uh, the first prophecy happening, uh, August 29th, um, and then we see that seven weeks later, the second prophecy happened. Then nine weeks later, the third prophecy happens. Guess what? The fourth prophecy happens on the same day as the third prophecy. Same day. I like how he even, it, he even says the date again. It says, and the Lord of the Lord came the second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. <laughs> he said, Ugh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date it again. So it's like that morning, he got a word to have everybody understand what holiness, holy, a holy lifestyle looks like. And then... On the, the, that, that afternoon, that evening, he's back in his journal again. He's like, I'm going to date it again. I want to make sure people know this is the time. This one is the one that uh, is amazing to me. I love how Haggai does this. This is incredible. Um, it's a, it's a, to me, this is a double sense of encouragement. This is where God does something that only God can do. Check it out. It says the word of the Lord came, speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots of their riders uh, and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down. Every one by the sword of his brother on that day, declares the Lord, verse 23, uh, the Lord, says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, um, what we see here is two things. The first thing we see in this prophecy is God's power. He says, I'm going to destroy everyone that comes against me, period. I'm going to display my power. That's what I'm going to do. You're going to see my power at work. Then we see uh, if I'm trying to make it alliterate, uh, then we see the next word is we see his power. Then we see his prince. Now, the 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 prince uh, is a little bit I, I had to stretch for that. But one of the things that we need to know about this text, this is where God. You know, God is all about consummation. Like whenever he he will he will make everything whole again. He will he he takes what we broke back in Genesis three. And he, if you read all the way through the scripture, he makes everything whole and right. That's what he does. He is a God of redemption. He brings back and fixes what we've made mistakes of. And it all works through this beautiful story. And in the very center of that story is Jesus, right? We know that Christ is the center of the story. He, everything revolves around him. Everything from the Old Testament led to him. Everything in the New Testament points back to him. In our life, we point to Christ. Everything points to Christ. So here's the thing I want to show you that I found from this this prophecy. This is one that blew my mind. Um, He's ultimately in this pointing to Jesus. Okay, that's where Haggai is pointing. But Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Jesus. Now, if we, if we think about that, you can go re- read the lineage. Both, the, uh, uh, both lineages of Jesus, there's two lineages of Jesus that both end up in the same place. Um, and the, they're, they're, they're like that for different reasons, and we'll explain that at another time whenever we get into the New Testament when we look at it. But Zerubbabel is in both lines of Christ. Here's what's wild. It keeps saying in here over and over again, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the leader of Judah, right? It, it keeps saying who his dad is. I know who Sheltiel is. He's, um, he's the son of another guy, and that guy is um, uh, Jehoiachin. Jehoiakim, if you remember back in Jeremiah, when we studied Jeremiah, Jehoiakim was cursed from God. God cursed him and said, you are, he basically took any type of signet ring away from Jehoiakim and says, I am not going to bless you. I'm not going to bless your offspring. I'm not going to bless anyone. I am cursing you. It's what he says back in Jeremiah chapter number 22. Lord put a curse on him. Here's what's crazy. Zerubbabel's ancestry, anywhere you read of Zerubbabel, it only goes back to his dad. His dad, Shealtiel, his dad was Jehoiakim. Now, Here's what God has done. God has said, Zerubbabel, your faith, what you have done to bring the people back, what you have done to uh, listen to my word from Haggai the prophet, what you've done to to change and alter and and let your life be transformed by my word, because that's, that's what it is, right? God's word came and obedience followed. That means they were transformed by the word that came. So he tells Zerubbabel, because you allowed the word that was from me to transform you. You know, Jesus is the word, right? I'm just, <laughs> this is so good. Because you've allowed the word to transform your heart and live a life in faith. He, he says, I'm going to allow you to be a part of the lineage of the one who will sit on the throne. Do you know when God cursed Jehoiakim, this is Zerubbabel's grandfather, when God cursed him, he said, no one from your lineage will sit on the throne. But you know what God does? He can take a generational curse, and he can break it, and he can break it with f- the faith of those who are transformed by his word. So in this prophecy, when we hear this, and I'll, I'll be just totally transparent with you. I got chills. This is so good. I got, when I read this the first couple of, first 50 times I've read through this book, I thought, Zerubbabel is a signet ring. Okay. I, did, I never put together that you've you got to keep looking p- back. And it's hard to even match the the, line, the the lineage up. It's hard to match up that this cursed. Uh, a king that was one that said, I, I'm, he's, he was against God and God said, I'm going to curse you and never will your son sit on the throne. But here's what God says to Zerubbabel. You may not sit on the quote throne of David because the throne of David had been, had been destroyed, right? The throne of David. Because here's what happened in the Babylonian captivity. Whenever they destroyed, the throne of David was gone, but the lineage of David was still very much intact. And so what God says is, You may not sit on the throne of David, but I'm going to allow you, Zerubbabel, to be named whenever the coming Messiah shows up. That I'm going to redeem everybody. You're going to be a signet ring. You do not think, and a signet ring, by the way, was given in the Old Testament to anyone that assumed temporary uh, uh, kingship or lordship in a in a season. So, for instance, if somebody was uh, had to go, if a king had to go away for a season, they would give a signet ring to someone else that would sit on the throne for that season the king was gone right so then in that time they had authority as the king they could act as the king they could do anything they wanted as the king and so he tells Zerubbabel i know there is a curse that's in your family line but i'm telling you because you have trans because my my word has transformed your heart because you have given your life over to me i have broken that 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 curse that's in your family because you've turned back to me, your heart is turned to me, and I want to know, I want you to know I will not forget you. I am going to restore you and your lineage. I'm going to restore who you are because you are now used by me. God is the only maybe you've got family issues, maybe you've got generational issues in your family, maybe you've got I don't know what you've got. But here's what I do know. When Haggai comes and tells Zerubbabel, and he keeps telling Zerubbabel, by the way, which is important to note. He does, Haggai doesn't just go up and, and start proclaiming to everybody. Every time the word of the Lord came to, to Haggai, he said, Go to Zerubbabel and say. And Zerubbabel was the one who had to determine whether he was going to believe it and share it or not believe it and share it at all. So Zerubbabel proved he, was gonna, he believed God's word. He allowed it to transform his heart. And he went, and next thing we know, the temple is constructed It's finished and it's it's where it should be. We see a few years later, Nehemiah shows up to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that surround it. But the first thing that had to happen was the temple, the the very center of, of, of Jerusalem, the very center of the remnant that came back was not supposed to be about their own homes and their own lives and their own freedoms. They should center their lives around the temple and the presence of God. That's what they were supposed to center around. When Haggai was there on the scene, he said, we have taken, we have taken our eyes off the center of who we are. So he, he calls out what he should have called out. He encourages where he needs to encourage. And then he says, and our behavior needs to revolve around this center presence of God himself. And then as the icing on the cake, God says, you've done the right thing. I'm going to bless your name. I'm going to bless who you are. And I'm going to put you in the very lineage. i tell you, one of the guys I can't wait to meet when I'm in heaven is Zerubbabel. I'm going to go up to him and be like, man, did you have any idea? How cool is this? We were talking about you, man, 2,000 years or 3,000 years after, after you were gone. Like, isn't that awesome? It's like, yeah, I couldn't even remember Jehoiakim's name. Couldn't remember it. Couldn't. I, I, was, I was having to look it up. I was like, oh, yeah, this guy. Forgot all about him. You know why? Because God says, you're not going to remember this guy. I'm cursing him. He's gone. He's, he's not, he's not for, he's not of my, my, my heart anymore. So today, maybe, 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 wherever you're at in your walk, I am, I'm encouraging you with this. If you have been focused on your own interests, let me tell you, that is not going to get you very far. Focused on your own interests typically will bring profitlessness. You, you can't get warm enough in the cold. You can't get cold enough in the warm. You can't get rich enough in the, in the, in the banks. You can't get... You just can't because God says, I want you to be after my interest in my heart. When the remnant came back, he says, be about me. And, and it should have been... And again, this is the first group that came back. These should have been the ones that were like all for it, all in. And God could have at any moment said, I put you in captivity, right? <laughs> if it were my dad, I brought you into this world. And I can take you out, right? That's the phrase. God could have said that at any moment. And he told, the, he told Haggai the prophet, I want you to tell these people what they've done wrong. I want you to steer them back to me. And I want them to know I'm going to bring a blessing on them when they do turn back to me. But it took, it took a few months, about four months in all, for these, these prophetic words to take place and for his, his, the callings to happen. It took him four months I don't know how long it'll take us here in Loudoun County, but my heart is that we would turn the hearts back to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.